got a pretty simple sermon. I, I tried to complicate it, but it wasn't working, so um, I'll just keep it simple here. Um, where we've been, we, uh, let's see, to, to, to catch everybody up where, where we're at, uh, Jesus has been arrested, been tried by Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. Um, last week we talked about Judas, but after the trial with Caiaphas, then what happened? Then, then they take him in the wee hours of the morning to Pilate. Um, so he's brought before Pilate. Matthew 27, verse 11, was it said, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And what did Jesus say? Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers, yes. How significant is that? How big is that? Verse 12, uh, when, he, when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he, he gave no answer. Um, and, and so, so to, to be mindful of what's going on here, uh, at Caiaphas' house, Caiaphas, the, the high priest in the Sanhedrin, you know, he's being tried by the religious people. And remember, Caiaphas charged him under oath, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And under oath, what did Jesus say then? Yes. So here Jesus has, has, uh, has told them he is the Son of God, and now here before Pilate, and, and this is interesting because uh, they charged him, Caiaphas charged him with blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And they want to kill him, but they can't kill him. They have no law to kill him. So they take it before Pilate so they can kill him. And they can't say he's guilty of blasphemy because Pilate wouldn't care about that. Um, so they make up these other charges. He, he, he opposes taxes. He's subverting our nation. And he claims to be king. So Pilate has to ask him, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? And he says, yes. I, I think about it. Before Caiaphas, he says he's the son of God. Before Pilate, he says he's king. Now, in my mind, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but I'm thinking Son of God trumps king, right? I mean, Son of God is really... But, but think about the, the, the importance of Jesus being king. That's the a, that's a focus of today. Jesus is king. And, and I can take you through some Old Testament scriptures. In the Old Testament, Genesis 49, verse 10, I think the first song that we sang about uh, mentioned this there. The scepter will not depart from Judah. And, and we know that Jesus is from the line of Judah, which means the scepter, the, 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 the symbol of authority, the, the symbol of being a king. It, it would not depart from Judah. It passed on down to Jesus. Jesus is now the king. Exodus 15, verse 18, the Lord will reign, as it says, forever and ever. Psalm 9, uh, verse 7 stood out to me. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the people with justice. How refreshing is that? The Lord is a refuge for, for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. And you think about, you just think about what a kingdom is and what the purpose of a king is. A, a king provides for the people protection and security so the people can live in peace and prosperity. And now, with, in, a, in a corrupt world, you know, it doesn't always happen right. But with Jesus as king, think just how beautiful this is. 
And so, I mean, the Old Testament, I could show you scripture after scripture after scripture. You get back into the book of Matthew. And Matthew, from, from the first chapter, almost the first words, the goal of, of Matthew when he wrote his gospel was to communicate to us Jesus is king. You see it with the gene- genealogy. Um, that he came from the line of David. You get into Matthew 2, and, and one of the first things we see, the Magi came from the east, and they said, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? There it is, at, right at the beginning of the book. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? They, they, they sought him. They traveled 600 miles. They brought gifts. They worshiped him. In Matthew 4, verse 17, Jesus preached, the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew 6, verse 9, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 33 tells us to seek first the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 10, verse 7, he sent out the disciples two by two with the message, Go preach that the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew 13, he tells all these parables. And every one of the parables begin, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. He's communicating to us about his kingdom and what it will be like. Matthew 21, the triumphal entry. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. And today we're in Matthew 27. And, and I'm just thinking I'm scratching the surface here. If you did an extensive, exhaustive study in the book of Matthew, which we've done for three years now, this has been the message that's been communicated over and over and over and over and over. And here in Matthew 27, verse 11, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And for whatever it's worth, I have here in your outline, 53 times Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God. 32 times Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous. So that's right there is 85 times. The kingdom of God appears 14 times in the letters of Paul. It's a very important concept for us to understand. And, and not only to understand, but to embrace. So that's my goal today. I'm hoping that we will see this here, that Jesus is the king. And, and he's demonstrated in the book of Matthew, he has all authority. He tells us in Matthew 28, verse 18, he's been given all authority. But he demonstrates it through his teaching, through his ability to heal his ability to forgive, his ability to cast out demons, his ability to, to, to control the physical elements in the world. And now let me take you, you know, I've, I, hopefully I've set the stage here for what, what this is all about here. And I want to take you back to the Old Testament. I want to take you to Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar was like freaking out about this dream. He, he didn't remember the dream and he doesn't understand the dream. He doesn't know what it's about. He called all the, the wise people, you know, tell me what I dreamt and tell me what it means. And nobody could do it except for Daniel. And Daniel comes in and Daniel interprets. He tells him the dream and then he interprets the dream. The dream, he says, this is Matthew 2, I think verse 32. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. This chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And, and, and you can go through all this. I don't want to get, I don't want to get um, lost in all the details here, but each one of these, the gold uh, symbolizes Babylon, the, 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 the chest and arms of silver that was Mede and Persia, the belly and thighs of bronze, that's Greece, uh, the legs of iron, that would be Rome. Uh, and, and this is... It's fascinating stuff because this was, Daniel tells him about this here in 500, 
in 50 BC, somewhere around there, 550 BC, long before Alexander the Great ever came upon the stage, long before uh, Caesar. And, and Daniel's telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is who you are, and this is what's coming, and this is what's coming, and, this, and after that, this is going to be this. And then you get down to here, it says, and while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on his feet, the feet of iron and clay, and smashed them. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. And the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What's, what's this rock? Or, or who is this rock? that strikes the toes and causes the whole statue to crash to the ground and shatter to dust, blown away by the wind. Daniel tells us about this rock. In verse 44, Daniel writes, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it, it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold to pieces. And now I'm thinking this, this, hopefully you're familiar with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You're familiar with the statue. And, and we, we, we can talk about the, you know, the gold head and you can talk about all these, you know, the, 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 the feet of iron. You can talk about all these other things. The rock, it's about the rock. Who cares about the statue? Look at this rock. Look at what this rock did. And this rock is Jesus. Jesus is the rock. In verse after verse after verse, I can show you. Jesus tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church. The church is the body of Christ. And Christ is the head of the body. And Nebuchadnezzar's statue, which represents all the kingdoms of the world, is replaced by the church where Jesus is the head, the kingdom of God, which is an eternal kingdom, will endure forever and ever and ever. And this is awesome stuff to me. I'm hoping I can communicate it to you. But the Roman Empire was replaced with what? The, the Holy Roman Empire. Christianity replaced Roman paganism. Christianity spread throughout Europe. Christianity tamed the barbarians. Christianity subdued the Vikings. And aren't we glad about that? I mean, I love movies about Vikings, but praise God we're not being killed by Vikings all the time, you know? Uh, Christianity permeated North America and South America is now spreading throughout China, uh, a country that is close to Christianity, but Christianity is spreading like wildfire. It's growing like a mountain. For 2,000 years, Christ has reigned as king and has radically changed the world, especially when you think about the Western civilization. Western civilization is what it is because people have recognized Jesus Christ as king. And kings have been crowned by popes. And kings have acknowledged that their authority comes from God. Kings have recognized that they have been empowered to serve Christ. That's why they have been given their power. The kings have implemented God's will in Christian values and justice and righteousness, sending missionaries and planting churches and spreading the gospel. And not that they were perfect, far from perfect, far from perfect. But 
it's what made Europe and America so prosperous and so blessed and, and civilized because Christ Jesus has reigned over Europe and Christ Jesus has reigned over America. And I say all that because I saw something this week that really hit me. And, and I'm, I'm, hoping, um, I'm hoping it'll kind of hit you too and, and, and maybe wake us up a little bit here. And what's fascinating about this is it was written by a pope. Um, it was a decree by a pope 100 years ago. In 1925, Pope Pius XI issued a papal decree to celebrate the Feast of Christ the King. In 1925, 100 years ago, We've got, to we've got to celebrate that Jesus Christ is king. And the, and, and the reason, reason for this, in 1925, uh, if I take you back, 100 years ago, it was a dark time in the world. The world, world was headed towards financial collapse and political upheaval. Europe was in chaos. Inflation was rampant. The seeds of evil that eventually led to the Holocaust in World War II were being planted, and Pope uh, Pope Pius XI was concerned that more and more people were turning away from the rule of Christ in their lives. And, and he recognized, I, just, I think this is awesome, he, he recognized the consequences of that. If people turn away from Jesus as king, what's going to happen? We've got to get back to see Jesus as king, to live our lives that Jesus is king, for everyone to recognize Jesus is king. If we don't recognize that, it's all going to collapse. The problem here is secular humanism makes personal decisions and, and determines moral values solely upon the basis of human understanding and reason and personal feelings with no regard for God's authority in their lives. Secular humanism is hostile to Judeo-Christian uh, values, to, to Judeo-Christian faith and the standards of biblical mor morality. People are being pressured to conform to secular humanism, to be tolerant, which sounded like a great idea until you see what that means, to be, to be silent, to be yourself, do as you please, providing you don't do what Jesus wants. Just don't be a Christian. The pressure on our world today, the pressure on young, the young generation, just do as you please. Forget about Jesus. And where is that going to lead? I saw, I saw a painting. Um, uh, if I, the, I think the guy's name is Miguel. Uh, is that a famous name? A famous, I'm, I'm not big on art. Um, but the painting, he, he meticulously painted all the generals first. And he was going to paint King Frederick in the middle. But before he got there, I mean, the generals are all there. But before he painted the king, he died. And the painting never got finished. Imagine a world with all these generals and no king. What do you think will be the outcome of that? how people thirst for power and control. What's going to happen? They're, they're going to kill each other trying to prove that they're the, they're the boss. You take Jesus out of the picture, and we're all generals just killing each other. It's, that's all you have left. Do we see how important this is? Pilate asked, are, are you the king of the Jews? In, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John elaborates quite a bit on this here, but you see in the Gospel of John that Pilate examines Jesus, 
And then you see in John 19, the soldiers crown Jesus. They crown him with a crown of thorns put on his head. They, they clothe him in purple, a purple robe, um, and they mock him. Hail, King of the Jews. And Pilate declared he's innocent. What does it say in, in, in John 18, verse uh, 38? From, from then on, Pilate tried to set free, Jesus free. No, no, this is John 19, verse 12. From, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king, uh, uh, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So, th- so they're putting this pressure on Pilate. Pilate's trying to, to set Jesus free because he recognizes Jesus is innocent. Then Pilate declares Jesus to be king, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. And then he posts on the cross when Jesus is crucified. He puts this, this, um, this, this, this up there. Pilate had notice prepared, fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He, he had it written in three different languages. And the Jews begged him to take it down. He says, what I've written, I've written. It's going to stay there. But the Jews reject Jesus as king. We have no king but Caesar, they decry. And Pilate, after declaring Jesus innocent three times, he crucifies the king. A big part of what I want to get through to us today is what are you doing to the king of the world? How should you be living your life in light of the fact that Jesus is king? And and then you think about what you should be doing with what are you doing. And and we've got to to examine ourselves. I mean, it's got to start with us as individuals. I mean, I know the world is just going crazy. But if Christians would get back to the basics and exalt Jesus Christ as king and live their lives accordingly— that would go along. There's a billion Christians on this earth. Is Jesus our king or he's just a statue someplace in our churches that look good? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevail, uh, to, to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. John 18, verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. It's in this world, but it's not of this world. And you think about the significance of that. That his kingdom is, yeah, it's in this world, but it's not of this world. So it cannot be bribed. It cannot be influenced. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be stopped. In Hebrews 12, it says it cannot be shaken. What does it say in Hebrews 12? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. But, but this world is trying to stop it. They mock Jesus as king. They reject Jesus as king. They will kill Jesus as king. But they can't stop Jesus from being king. Let me take you to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Is what it says, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And verse 4 says, uh, the, the, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
the Lord scoffs at them. Like, look, at, look at how foolish these people are when they oppose Jesus Christ, when they mock Jesus Christ, when they try to kill Jesus Christ. He just laughs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger and, and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decrees of the Lord. He said, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. And you will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. And then it says in verse 10, therefore, you kings, be wise. There, there is a big part of the message right here. Um, all of us in America, we, all of us who, who are living like kings, in some ways we are, we are kings of our own lives. Be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and, 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 destroy, uh, and you be destroyed in your ways. It says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. In Daniel, you go back to Daniel, the rock struck the statue and became a huge mountain. It filled the whole earth. Jesus talks in Matthew about this mustard seed. In Matthew 13, verse 31, they told them the parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in the field. Though it is the smallest of the, of the seeds, yet it grows, it, bec it becomes the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air can perch in its branches. Can you imagine a world that recognized Jesus as king? He is king. They're just having a problem with the world seeing it and submitting to it. So I got some questions. When, when, when does the rock smash the, the statue? When, when does the gold and the bronze and the silver and the iron, when does it all fall, come crashing down? When is this supposed to happen? Daniel says this is what's going to happen, but when does the rock do this? Was it at the birth of Jesus? Was it at the, at the death of Jesus, at the resurrection of Jesus, at Pentecost, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD? We talked about that for a long time. Was it when the Roman Empire became the Holy Roman Empire? That happened around 600 AD. When? I, I'm not sure. Well, okay, let me move on. Where? Where is the kingdom of God? I think we can answer when when we get to where. Um, because where is the kingdom of God? It has, it has no geographical boundaries, right? It has no capital city. Luke 17 tells us this. In Luke 17, verse 20, once having been asked by the Pharisees where the kingdom of God would come, when the kingdom of God would come, sorry, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. This is huge. When, how, the kingdom of God is within you, and the kingdom of God spreads individually, one at a time, maybe beginning with, you know, when Jesus healed the ten lepers, and, and one of them came back and recognized Jesus. Maybe, maybe when the woman was uh, freed from her hemorrhaging, maybe when the blind man received his sight, the, the a mother received back her, her, her child, and like a mustard seed, it began to grow and grow and grow. When, when the rule of God rests within us, when God changes your life, when, when you are touched by the hand of God and, and now Jesus becomes your Lord, 
your master, your savior, then the kingdom of God continues to grow and grow and grow. We, we gratefully acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. When, when we live to please God, what it says in Romans 12, that, that we, we live to please him, um, that's when the kingdom of God begins to grow. Christ reigns in us when the Holy Spirit lives in us. Wherever there, there's a heart surrendered to, G, to Jesus Christ, that is where the kingdom of God exists. Napoleon, he's famous for saying this. He says, Alexander and Caesar and Charlemagne and myself, we founded empires. But on what did we rest the, the creations of our genius? He says, upon force. That's how we built our kingdoms. But then you look at Jesus. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love. And at this, at this hour, millions of men would die for him. That trumps any man-made kingdom ever built. And that's what we have in our world today. People who are completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. People who would die for Jesus Christ. People who are living their lives for Jesus Christ because they recognize he is king. He is king. I mean, who's a part of this kingdom? Uh, Paul writes it to the Colossians. We, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he's brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. He's brought us into the kingdom. He said that to the Colossians, a similar thing to the Thessalonians. For, for you know that we dealt with each of you as, as a father deals with his children, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. The seven churches in Asia, of Asia in, in the book of Revelation. What does it say in Revelation chapter 1 verse 6? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by, by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest. So, so the seven churches of Asia, the church of Thessalonica, the church of, of uh, the, the Colossians. Uh, are you a part of it? Are we a part of it? Is this church a part of it? I, I hope so. Let me ask this. Are you a part of his church? I hope so. Are we working together to build his kingdom? Or are we just coming and singing a, a couple of songs and eating and having potluck dinners? I mean, it it's about building his kingdom. We, we exist to be his body, to be his hands and feet, to exalt him as king. Are we a part of it? I hope that we are a part of this kingdom. As the Holy Spirit reigns in our hearts, we are a part of this kingdom. And what will this kingdom be like? I, I, I want to throw this one at you. Ephesians 5, verse 5, for for of this you can be sure, no immoral or impure or greedy person, such a, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. That ought to get your attention. You want to be a part of this kingdom? you got to examine your heart. Are you living for Christ? Is, is, is Christ king of your life, king of your heart? Or are you living like a pagan, but calling yourself a Christian? Romans 14, verse 17, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, of joy in the Holy Spirit. There's some evidence if you're part of the kingdom or not. Psalm 45, verse 6, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be a scepter of your kingdom. There will be justice in his kingdom. Matthew 13 tells us what the kingdom of heaven will be like. Jesus' kingdom is in the world, but not of the world. It does not conform to the world's expectations or pressures. It brings peace. It brings justice. It brings compassion. It brings mercy. His kingdom is built on truth. His, his kingdom is built on love. It's on righteousness. 
Who is king? Who, who is really in charge? Who has always been in charge? Who will always be in charge? Not Pilate. Kings come and go. Governors come and go. Presidents come and go. And Jesus will still be king. Forever and ever, he will be king. So let me end with four questions here. First of all, I ask you, and this is, this is extremely important, where is your allegiance? And what does that mean? And just throw out some things here. I mean, we can be passionate about politics. We can be passionate about our families. We can be passionate about our, our country, um, our work. Some of us are passionate about ourselves. You know, your allegiance should be to God alone. You remember the story of Chariots of Fire? Uh, Eric um, Liddell, I think his name is, um, Chariots of Fire. I've never seen the movie, by the way. Um, but the, the, what it's about, he, he was in the Olympics, and, and he, he was famous for, you know, he's, so, he's fast. He ran the 100 meters, um, and, 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 and he was scheduled in the Olympics to run on the Lord's Day. And he said, I can't do that. And, and from what I understand, he was ripped to shreds over that. Like, what do you mean you can't run? You, you're in the Olympics. You represent your country. You have to do this. And, and there was pressure in the press. Uh, he was called a traitor uh, to the Scottish, um, even being called a traitor to Scottish sporting by the press. He received political pressure from the Prince of Wales that you'd better run. You represent our country. He said, I represent Christ. First and foremost, and he's, uh, he said he was proud to, to be, uh, you know, the country he was from. Scotland, is that where he's from? Um, he, he was proud of his, of his heritage. Uh, he was proud to represent his country. But he, his first allegiance was to Jesus Christ. What does, where, where's your allegiance? Where you, and, and, and secondly, what are your priorities? What are your priorities? You think about in your life, what is most important to you? And, and, and I, I go, a couple of answers. Your family, yourself, your work. And one of the verses in the Bible that has, I, I feel like, has done wonders for me, I hope it will for you, in, in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Make sure you got that right before anything else. Is Jesus your king? D.L. Moody says the church is full of people who want one eye for the world and the other eye for the kingdom of God, and therefore everything is blurry. It's all blurry. If Jesus is your king, let me ask this question then what are your responsibilities? What are your responsibilities? And, and I didn't spend too much time on that. I mean, I could preach um, all kinds of messages on this here. But the, the thing that's overwhelming to me, you are to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And how, how desperately this world needs ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Because this world is turning on Jesus Christ. This world is rejecting Jesus Christ. What's, what's the end game to that? 
we have got to go tell the world that Jesus is king. We represent Jesus. He's given us a purpose. He's given us a mission to promote, to promote kingdom values. Ultimately, he, he wants his followers to extend his message to the ends of the earth so that all people will have the opportunity to give their allegiance to him as their Lord and Savior and King so that all people can experience his blessings. They're not going to receive his blessings if they don't recognize his kingdom. You're called to be an ambassador. You're called to be a light in this dark world. You're called to be his witness. And let me ask one more thing. As, as citizens of the king, citizens of, of King Jesus, citizens who claim Jesus to be Lord and Savior and the king of my life, let me ask you about your behavior. How, how are you representing him? How, how, well, how well is that going for you? When people look at you, can they tell that that person serves the king of kings? Or do they look at you and say, that person, just like me, and we all got issues. Um, I, I go back to Ephesians 5, verse 5, for, for this you can be sure no immoral or impure or greedy person, such a man, an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I think it's a, a verse that we need to pay attention to. I think all verses we need to pay attention to. But right now, let's give that one some attention. Another verse that stands out in my mind, he has shown you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? He requires you to act justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. That's what it says in Micah 6, 8. And I'm over time, so I can't do what I want to do. Um, stink. Um, I'll give you another one. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. Oh, now that's hard, but this is what our king has required of us. He says, for it is God's will that by doing so, by, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now part of that comes by submitting to every authority. And that can be hard. That can be really hard. But this is what our king has asked us to do. Do we trust him? Do we trust our king? And it goes on. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't abuse this freedom that God has given you. It says live as, live as servants of God. Are you doing that? Are you serving God with your life? Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. I mean, right there is some good practical stuff that, that is, is required of every person who calls himself a Christian, who acknowledges Jesus as king. You go to Romans 12. Romans 12 says, conform, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Romans 12, so much practical stuff here. Uh, love must be sincere. Uh, hate what is evil. Are you doing that? Are you clinging to what is good? It says in verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It says in, in verse 11, never be lacking zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. It says be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. It says in verse 16, do not be proud. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Verse 21, do not, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And, and I, could, I could think of verse after verse after verse. And, and this is what I want to do, which I, I'm not going to take time to do it right now, but I just want to ask you, um, if, you know, what, what does the Bible require of you being a citizen of the king? Uh, just think about it. Think, don't, don't answer out loud. We're not going to take time to do this. But just think, is, there, is there, a, there a verse in the Bible that stands out to you, this is what Christ has called me to do? This verse speaks to me. This, is, this verse has challenged me. This is what I'm working on right now. And, and we could go through every book of the Bible, and there's got to be something there. The question is, is Jesus your king? Are you listening? It's not, the question isn't, is Jesus king? He is. The question is, is he your king? Is he your king? We are citizens of God. We've been redeemed by God. We owe our lives to God. And there ought to be a difference between the people of God and the people who are not of God. Is there a difference? Is Jesus Christ your king? My challenge to you today is let Jesus Christ be king. Let him be your king. In Luke, 20, uh, Luke 23, I don't know where it is. Uh, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. Is that true? Are you grateful for all that Jesus has done for you? Is he reigning in your heart? And if he's reigning in your heart, then he will reign in our church, and he will reign in our families. He will reign in our community. He will reign in our nation. He will eventually reign in this world. He is king. Are we living in rebellion to him? Are we living in grateful submission to him? surrendered to him. And as I close, I want to ask if there's anyone in this room, and you, you know it, you know that you have been living in rebellion to God. You've been doing it your way. You're living for yourself. You've bought into secular humanism, and you're tolerant of things you should not be tolerant of, and you're living hostile to God. If that's you, I beg you today to stop it. And give Jesus the glory to his name. And allow him to be the king of your heart.